The U.S. House of Representatives is absolutely bonkers right now. It currently holds an incredibly slim majority. Uh, we all just experienced an unprecedented and long speaker election. We have unique members of Congress, I'll call them that. And there are a lot of other problems that stem from our current House infrastructure. Today's episode deep dives into a potential solution to this craziness called proportional representation. We'll deep dive into the weeds on what this is and what it means later in the episode, but the reason why I wanted to feature this topic on the show was because I want this podcast to be a sounding board for ideas and experts and thinkers to come and share. Bettering democracy and improving institutions is something that I think a lot about and really see them as the key to our future is having infrastructure that can solve problems now and for the future. So today we have on the show Dustin Wall to discuss proportional representation. Dustin is a good friend and works with the organization called Fix Our House. Fix Our House is a new education and advocacy campaign that promotes proportional representation as a needed reform to offer America's diverse electorate full and fair representation in the U.S. House. Dustin first got his start in reforming institutions when co-founding the organization Save 71, an alumni organization that advocated for reform at Liberty University. The organization called for accountability during former President Jerry Falwell's corruption and scandals and continues to call for accountability and reform within the school. In this episode, we'll learn how he translated reforming an institution on a smaller scale and how he translated that to the now, his now work in democracy reform. This episode was pre-recorded in October, but I think the ideas and discussion is even truer for today. Enjoy. Hello, Dustin. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, super excited to be here. Great. Well, for those of you who don't know Dustin, we are friends and we knew each other from our same university experience, which we will kind of get into later in the podcast. But before he introduces himself, I just kind of want to give him a quick hype up that <laughs> oh, no. Dustin is, I'm, I would say, a very thoughtful thinker. And he has led a lot of really cool public projects. And so when thinking about who I wanted on the podcast, especially as first guest, Dustin was one of the first people that came to my mind because of how he approaches big picture ideas, what's going on in the world, and how he acts on them. So I'm really excited to discuss um, a lot of these issues that we're about to bring up today and some of the work that he's working on. But Dustin, for those who don't know you and didn't go to college with you, could you give us a brief introduction of who you are and maybe some of the projects that you've worked on? Yeah, um, it's 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 hard to separate those those two things. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I uh, I so we we both went to Liberty University together, as you mentioned, um, and. Um, I, I went to that school because I was really interested in politics at a young age and wanted to go to, uh, a, a politically sort of connected conservative university, um, because I was, you know, really, really conservative Republican, uh, in, in high school. And that's, that's kind of where I wanted to, to, to go to college. 
And so um, while I was there, you know, I started in 2014. The the Trump takeover of the Republican Party happens in, in 2015 to 16. Um, and uh, that sort of served as kind of a, a mirror and, a, a, you know, a, a thing that that helped um, me reevaluate a lot of my political beliefs. Um, and uh, I started a, an organization of students at the time called Liberty United Against Trump, which was just a way to sort of push back on uh, on what the school's administration was doing. For those who don't know, um, Falwell, the leader of Liberty at the time, was a big um uh, endorsement of of Donald Trump and kind of trying to normalize him to evangelical Christians, which I thought was was bad. And uh, so I, I I got involved in kind of pushing back against the school's leadership that way. Um, uh, after college, um, uh, I started an alumni organization um, aimed at removing Falwell from uh, from his leadership role at, at Liberty. Um, which happened, but not credit to us, uh, mostly credit to uh, a lot of other things. Um, but uh, um, after that, uh, really was fortunate to to be able to stay kind of in the the broad um, uh, reform space um, in in my career as well. It's a very, very different focus. Uh, but right now I work for an organization called Fix Our House which is doing democracy reform um, and uh, uh, super important um, work that I'm proud of that, that I know we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but that's, uh, that's the, the professional summary. Uh, <laughs> if you want the, the, the personal summary that we can get into that too. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's where I start. Yeah. That's so interesting. I love how you also said they're interconnected because I feel like that's for sure true. with your professional and personal life it all kind of collides but i'm actually just going back to your intro really quick were you like one year into college when you started are you against trump or living united against trump um no uh i was i was a junior yeah okay okay i was like wow that is <laughs> so ambitious of you um and i actually uh this is almost a side note i remember I mean, when I was going into Liberty because Dustin's older than me and I was a little nervous about how conservative the school was going. I'm particularly then it was, it was going like a pretty yeah. right route. And I remember seeing one of your articles um, and it was all Dustin Wall for Liberty United Against Trump. And I was all, okay, there are some normal people at this university. So I don't know if I, should, that. I don't know if I should, yeah say you're welcome or say I'm sorry that I yeah I, I know <laughs> you kind of did me a disservice but also a service yeah. who knows um but yeah and then as far as uh your save 71 experience which we don't have to get too far into and for those of you who don't know save 71 is the organization you started to to take down Fallwell. I guess what was your your thinking behind that like how did you operationally do that uh -huh. um to to take down Jerry Falwell and, and why did you feel like that was necessary? Well, um, yeah, so that's a good that's a good place to start there because um, the the original goal was to to remove Falwell. The organization still exists, um, and while it's less active, very very much less active now. Like after Falwell left, it was also active and had kind of a different set of goals. Um, but you know, originally, um, I think 
um, when I, I started that group with with some others, and you were you were very helpful um, as we got off the ground. Um, lots of you know, lots of alumni participated at varying levels. Um, it, the goal was um, the goal was primarily to to remove Falwell from power and to be a to create a sense of accountability around the school that just doesn't have any external or internal like sources of accountability. Um, so um, again, the main thing was to remove Falwell from from power, but we also kind of had a threefold uh, set of goals. Um, one to be a source of information for people inside the school, students and alumni and faculty who wanted the school to change and simply to be a, a source of information for them because there's not too many ways that you, you know, you learn about the school and what's going on inside the in, uh, administration internally because there's no transparency in the administration. Um, so that was the kind of the first goal, just to simply provide the information that we were hearing. Uh, two, to provide that same information for outside accountability, regulators that we thought were, were sitting on their hands and needed to do a better job of of holding the school accountable, accountable places like uh, SACS, which is the accrediting body that um, that oversees Liberty and, and grants its accreditation. Liberty's board appears to have been violating a lot of SACS regulations for uh, for a long time. Sorry, not a lot, but a couple of very key SACS regulations. Um, not to, we're not going to get in the weeds about sex regulations unless your audience is really desperate for that. But, um, but uh, you know, them, the Department of Education, which actually is currently investigating uh, Liberty University, um, we thought that that was warranted a couple of years ago as well. And so we wanted to be a source of information for um, for those kinds of uh, organizations, as well as for journalists that were were coming in and looking at the school and trying to figure out what was going on. And then lastly. We wanted to be that um, that sort of outside force of accountability um, that created a different story about the school. So, you know, you'd see all these headlines that were basically just Falwell says crazy thing or Liberty does insane thing, you know, and we were able to change a lot of those headlines to alumni criticize Liberty for insane thing. You know, alumni group stands up to Falwell for insane thing. And, you know, Again, we're not trying to paper over the the you know the the parts of the alumni community and the student community that are very you know happy with the direction that that Falwell and and that the current leadership have taken the school. But we think it's important for those who don't feel that way to have some amount of a voice, um, so that that it's not just uh, it's not just the you know the one angle that that you you hear over and over again about uh, about liberty and you know people show up at liberty like i did when they're 18 years old and either because you know they wanted what i wanted at first in a university or because their parents essentially made them go um you know you shouldn't have to answer for what your you know for the reckless irresponsible things that your leadership does for the rest of your life uh you know, when, when you're an 18 year old, that's just trying to have like a college experience. Um, so I, I hope that makes sense, but that, that was kind of our, our outline for it. We were never, you know, we, we thought it was very plausible that Falwell could be removed from power. Um, but those of us, um, Justin Winter, Cal Best and, and others that, that, uh, that started the group with me, we were, um, we weren't thinking that we were going to, you know, 
fundamentally change the school and make it into a place that we uh, that we could be proud of and that we really liked. We don't see that really as a plausible thing, but we don't think that, you know, reform is a binary operation where there's only two outcomes. Like it, you know, the truth has a lot of benefits, even if it doesn't, you know, end up in exactly the results that you want. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Um, and then as far as, um, because I think a lot of people, obviously the, the documentary just went out called God forbid on Hulu, um, which was about kind of the Falwell sex scandal. And then they kind of go into some deeper implications of what's been going on behind the scenes at Liberty. I guess from your perspective, if you felt comfortable answering this, I'm when they hear Liberty, when they hear the takedown of Jerry Falwell, a lot of it was because of the sex scandal with the pool boy. And pretty much everything that you mentioned there was actually all about deeper things that were going on behind the scene than this big sex scandal. So what percentage of, of Falwell's takedown and, and Falwell's misbehavior do you think was a sex scandal and then was just everything that was going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a good question and maybe the most important question about it all. I mean, did you did you see the documentary? I I watched um the first 20 minutes of it. I was okay. a little too triggered. Yeah. Um and it was also information that I was a- extremely well aware yeah. of and <laughs> right. was trying to convince my parents of um for uh, multiple years. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean well the, the good thing that I'll say to to um Billy Corbin and and Alfred Spellman and, and the people that like are behind that, they're great storytellers and they um they did a good job of of after the first, honestly, after the first 20 minutes, that's mostly focused on the sex scandal, getting into uh, the history and, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and getting a little deeper. And um, so I, I, I hope it's a positive, um, just for the wider community that that, that that story is being told in, in an accessible place like Hulu, where you can watch it. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, to your point, there are, um there's this sort of narrative that, you know, Falwell's personal life, because he had this affair that, that he and his wife were involved in, um, and and because of his, his alcoholism, you know, that that's what brought him down, and, and that that was sort of the main and only problem. Um, to, to some degree, it's true that that is, I mean, to a great degree, it's true that that is what ultimately removed him from power. There's this story that... Um, Fortunately, the documentary actually does mention very briefly, but um, Falwell initially was placed on leave by this by the school's board after he posted this insane picture of him with his wife's assistant. And both of them had their like pants unbuttoned and he was, you know, holding a glass of something and, uh, you know, breaking like four rules uh, that the school has like right there. And he just posted on his Instagram uh, and it looked really creepy and everything, too. And um uh, he was placed on leave shortly after that, which, you know, to a lot of people looked like a fairly normal, reasonable thing. Like, oh, you know, I guess Falwell went too far this time and the board is holding him accountable. That wasn't happening at all. The, the board um, the board at Liberty is almost entirely checked out. Uh, they don't pay attention. They probably didn't know that that photo was going around. At least most of them didn't, um, unless unless someone had had shared it with them all. But um, the board wasn't suddenly holding Falwell accountable at that moment, which is the impression that that kind of everyone had. 
Um, really what was happening is the Falwells um, and I think some of their other allies had gone to the board and said, we, we, we need some time. Like Falwell needs to go on leave. Um, maybe because they knew that this story with Giancarlo Grande was about to come out. Um, and, uh, you know, they were, Falwell was going to go into rehab and the school was going to pay for it. Um, or at least that was the initial plan. Um, and, and so I'm bringing all this up to say that like, there were a lot of last straws. There were a lot of things that should have been the last straw. And even that, like they were planning, the school was fully planning to bring Falwell back after he'd been placed on leave, which would have been crazy, but they were, they were, they were, um, at least that was the initial plan. Um, then, you know, the story comes out and they do, uh, they do ask him to resign and he does resign. Um, but, uh, the, the the false narrative um about it is that Falwell's um you know involvement in this this uh strange you know abnormal uh relationship with uh, his wife and Giancarlo Granda and his drinking that those were kind of the only problems um or or like even the main problems um and it's frustrating because uh like that relationship was is 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 strange and, and unhealthy and manipulative as as the Falwells were to to Giancarlo. That relationship wasn't as bad as some other relationships that they have had uh, with 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 students with with other people um, at the school. Now I'm not I'm not trying to imply I'm not trying to to say that they had um, you know uh, I'm I'm not trying to say too much about like what the nature of all those relationships are, but, um, but we know it's been reported that, you know, Becky Falwell, um, you know, like sexually preyed on a Liberty student. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a, a quite a different, you know, uh, different scenario than the Giancarlo one. And, and, um, I guess I'm kind of ranting here, but, um, like it's, it's frustrating and sad that, like Liberty's board to the extent that they will be critical of Falwell now is able to just say, well, the only problems with the guy were that he, you know, was tempted by these worldly things, alcohol and sex and everything else was fine, you know? Uh, and, and in doing that really feel satisfied that they don't have to deal with, you know, problems of racism at the school, which go very deep into the school's history. And they don't feel like they have to deal with, you know, the insane, reckless way that uh, that the school has uh, has managed its finances and still does. And they feel like they don't have to deal with the lack of academic freedom at the school and, and all of those other things that that were huge problems that most university presidents probably would have been held uh, to account for way earlier um, because of this sort of strange relationship that they can just pin everything on. Um, it's also not fair to uh, to any of them, really. It's not fair to Becky. It's not fair to Jerry Falwell Jr. It's certainly not fair to Giancarlo Granda, who's kind of been treated like this, you know, uh, like, I mean, he's really been dehumanized, I think, uh, mm -hmm. as, as sort of this, you know, people call him like the pool boy or whatever, and just leave it at that. Um, so that was a much longer answer than what you asked for, Alexa. But uh, um, yeah, I think maybe gets to some of this. Yeah, I know when I was explaining it to to friends or or family who thought I was overreacting overreacting um you know 
it was very hard to communicate that that this situation was so much larger than um, what was going on with his personal life. I honestly didn't care as much about what was going on in his personal life as much as I cared about my professors not having PhDs or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my books saying that um, like very triggering things and and racist things. Um, yeah. that's, that's what I really cared about. Yeah. Um, and so it was very hard to communicate that, but I'm, I guess just kind of leading into your work now, obviously both of us are in the democracy reform space. So how did you translate your work into reforming, um, like an evangelical institution essentially to, to democracy reform? And where do you see the two connections there? Yeah. Um, well, um, I, so I, I work for Fix Our House, uh, which I'm drinking coffee from my little Fix Our House. Shameless plug. Uh, yeah, a little, little plug. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, I, I didn't, I didn't start Fix Our House. I started Save 71, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, luckily um, there are, uh, there are a lot of much older, wiser people who have been, uh, been in the democracy reform space for a long time. So just to be clear. Um, but, um, so there's, there's plenty of parallels though, I think between kind of what, um, sort of the, the spirit of, of what I was hoping to do with, um, with Save 71 and and what we're trying to do with Fix Our House. Um, I guess maybe I should start by describing what, what it is and and exactly what we're trying to do, which I'll try to do in the least nerdy way possible, (laughs) but, um, which is, you know, we'll see. Uh, you can score me on how nerdy it is afterwards. Um, so basically, right now, everyone uh, in America has one representative in Congress. Um, we want a system where uh, every or, or at least most Americans have multiple representatives um, representing their congressional district in Congress. Um, and what that does is it allows for proportionality. So um proportional representation is the the system that we want where your party's percentage of support uh is equal to its percentage of seats in congress so if your party has 20% of the vote you get 20% of the seats if it has 60% of the vote you get 60% of the seats um right now it's you know it, because you only have uh, one representative in each district you just have to have the most votes and it doesn't matter if you have, you know, 51% and your opponent has 49%, which is, you know, almost exactly the same amount of support, you know, the side with 51%, they, uh, get, uh, you know, they get the seat, um, which seems fair, of course, cause there, you know, there's more of them, but that, that really, uh, overlooks, you know, huge chunks of the country that, uh, that don't have any voice in Congress. So right now you see, a state like Massachusetts has nine representatives. They're all Democrats. Uh, well, makes sense because Massachusetts is a liberal state, right? Well, yes, but 30% of Massachusetts, I think 32% voted for Trump in 2020. That's like a substantial amount of the state. Yeah, they're not ever going to have enough support in any one of those nine districts to elect a Republican, but that's a lot of Republicans in Massachusetts that are just voiceless. Um, same thing in Oklahoma. You have Almost a third of Oklahoma uh, is Democratic, but all of Oklahoma's five representatives in Congress are Republicans. 
Um, so with multi-member districts and proportional representation, what it allows you to do is break up um, uh, those, you know, those single member districts and, and, and put them into larger ones where um, your percentage of, of uh, the vote can, can ac actually equal out into how many seats you have. So maybe Massachusetts would have three districts with three members each and roughly, uh, roughly a third of of the the state would would probably have a chance to elect more conservatives. Um, it would also lead to different types of conservatives, different types of liberals from across the country getting elected. You know, we have a two party system right now, largely because of this uh, this way that that we elect Congress, where where you just have two options, and uh, and anything else is a spoiler that that takes away um, your, your side's chance to win. Um, when you when you use a system with with a lower threshold, you know, um, so so that twenty percent can translate into a, a seat, that allows more parties to form, therefore allowing more Americans that don't quite fit in this two party system that we have uh, to be represented. Um, now that sounds really weird and, and maybe like a pie in the sky, you know, political science nerd idea, but it's not. It's it's the way that you know most democracies uh, elect their houses. America is really the exception to the rule, um, and and we think it's it's important to to be talking about this reform right now when when things seem like they're uh, not getting better for democracy anytime soon. You know, we have systemic problems. Uh, we have this two party binary us versus them uh what what my co-founder uh fixer house's co-founder lee drutman calls a doom loop where you know polarization between the two parties leads to more dysfunction which also leads to more polarization which leads to even more dysfunction and and that is just going to continue unless we break it uh, unless we you know create more options that actually represent more americans and, and you break the the binary us versus them um uh, feedback loop. Um, so that's, that's, you know, what we're, what we're wanting to do and, and what we're, what we're calling for. Um, how it relates, I guess, is, um, well, maybe one jumping off point is to, to talk about, uh, Liberty's, uh, on-campus precinct. I remember in, uh, when did you start at Liberty? 20... 2018 or 2017, yeah. something like that. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so in 2016, um, uh, in the the presidential primary that year, um, Liberty's Liberty's precinct, which which as as you know is is only the students that live on campus, mm -hmm. have changed their voter registration because you know in their Bible class the school comes in and says you know hey we want you to to change yeah. your voter registration. Um, and uh, so, so they vote on campus, um, and uh, those those students in 2016 um, voted 44 percent for Rubio. Uh, Ted Cruz was second with I think 20 something, and then uh, Donald Trump was a distant fourth with seven percent of Liberty's on campus precinct. That's March 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know what was it like a few months later, Trump, you know, has complete support of, you know, of the Republican party, but like mm -hmm. most Liberty students in this very conservative 
precinct who who are already you know the most mm -hmm. rule following students on campus because they've done what the administration asked them to do uh they were choosing different candidates you know but um but in the in the general election you just have us versus them you know mm -hmm. you, you maybe you didn't like everything that trump had said but well you know we can't vote for hillary clinton because we you know we we just hate Hillary Clinton, you know, or because of abortion or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever the reason is. Well, you know, this reform, uh, we're, we're, we're focused on the House, you know, this wouldn't change uh, how presidential elections work, but it does change that dynamic in so many races around the country where it's the same kind of thing where you really wanted a different candidate uh, that, that more accurately represents you. But when it comes time for the general election, you, you feel like you you have to vote uh, not based on what you like, but but primarily vote against who you don't like. You know, negative partisanship is is what it's called. You know, you're more motivated by who you fear or who you dislike than than uh, than what you believe. Um, that's just not a healthy thing for democracy. We should be able to vote for, you know, candidates and ideas that we support. Uh, mm -hmm. and this would, would allow us to, to begin to do that a lot more. And also, like I said, allow, allow potentially, you know, third parties to form that then could, you know, be a lot more viable in a presidential election. Um, so there's, there's yeah. my attempt to tie it in, see, see what you think of that. Yeah, no, that, all of that was, was great. I have so many questions that I could jump off or, or ask you about, um, so first of all, you said that this is just, for, or actually just to break down, um, yeah. just to break down definitions really quick. So you argue for proportional representation, which if people want to learn more about that, you can certainly Google it. It's a very common term in- Or, or Alexa, you can go to fixourhouse.org. Oh, oh, great. You guys have resources. <laughs> yes, go to Fix Our House. Hopefully that's, you know, one of the first things that pop up if you have a, a good yeah. Google little search or analytics thing. Um, but yeah, proportional representation. Um, I, does Britain, the UK, have proportional representation? No, they do not. They're talking about. Uh, they're they're kind of arguing about that right now. But um, Britain okay. and Canada yeah. and the US are kind of the three that sure. Are, you know, don't don't. Yeah. What, uh, could you give us some countries that do have proportional <clears throat> representation? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? And I don't know if that's where you're yeah. going get really into the weeds and yeah. and, uh, and make this a political science podcast no but um uh i mean um ireland uh is a is a, a good um model uh new zealand um mm -hmm. has a really good model that that we like um but yeah a lot of most democracies i think it's something like 80 mm -hmm. percent depending on how you break it down have a system where their their house is uh, or at least one of their houses is chosen uh, proportionally. That's great. That's actually where I was going to go next, because I actually didn't know this going into the conversation that you were focusing solely on the House of Representatives, which obviously political science background, that sounds insane to me that we would have like a completely different system for electing the House than than the Senate. And I don't even know how how that how, how all of this work or, or how presidents so if there were multiple political parties or maybe you can get into this if we were voting on on like multiple political parties that were different factions of like maybe someone is like a liberal christian like that's a 
that's a party um yeah like somewhere in the uk or something along those lines mm -hmm. would they just turn into democrats and then and then decide to choose a party republican or democrat when they run for president and when they run for the senate even though they're off on this little third party faction party when when they're in the house um well i i, I think i I, I think I know what you're what you mean in, in terms of like you're asking you're saying like this would make third parties more viable at the house level, but maybe not at the presidential level. And so then how would that Yeah, how, how would, would it translate? Yeah. Well, I mean, what it does is it it allows um political fracturing, whether that's a third party forming or simply a liberal Republican getting elected or a conservative dem or democrat getting elected uh in parts of the country. It allows that to um, it allows those people to get some amount of a foothold in our politics. Right now, we have the system where you don't have a, much diversity in the two parties. You have a country mm -hmm. of what is it, three hundred and twenty million people? Um, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, all of us are, are crammed into two parties. Um, so, yes, it's not a change that affects like the presidency directly or the Senate directly. But right now we don't have really any uh, like elected positions in, in the United States that uh, that have like that are sort of within the realm of competition for more than just two parties. So if you have, you know, all of a sudden a new party popping up in Massachusetts that represents, you know, some kind of massachusetts brand of conservative something mm -hmm. um like that would be a, a person who then has their their political brand along with their party right and that party could then grow in in viability to where maybe massachusetts decides actually we want to elect one of these guys to the senate um mm -hmm. which by the way the senate is already a, a multi-member district uh so you know you every state has two officials so that's not too very far from what we're proposing it is different but um so that's kind of that's kind of how uh this could affect politics more largely in terms of creating paths for more parties in that it, it gives other parties and other factions a foothold in our politics um so that yeah it's starting out you know local um but uh but it but it you know allows people to put resources into to third parties um, and fourth and fifth parties, you know, without, um, without just, you know, wasting their time. Okay. And so to, to break it down, like even further, if this were to happen, would essentially the house of representatives be like tripled and, um, <laughs> would people maybe still run in, in a two party system, like Repub Republican and Democrat, but maybe be more diverse in their views? Or um, would there just be, again, all of these, do you think that they would create political parties or do you think that they would just perhaps be a more diverse um, kind of kind of caucus? Yeah, well, I mean, the second question first, uh, it, either or, um, mm -hmm. it, depending on, really depending on what people want, what, you know, the, the, the change to proportionality is basically just a more democratic system where, if, again, if you have, 20% of the vote, you get 20% of the seats. So whether that's, you know, whether that looks like a whole new party forming, um, that political science would tell you that that's what will happen eventually. 
um, because people want, you know, because political parties are the basic building blocks of of democracy and and mm-hmm. you know like it or not uh they're uh they're kind of uh inevitable i think to some degree um uh but um but you know at least at first you would definitely see more viability for uh people within the parties the two parties now that don't necessarily reflect um, what, what the national party is like. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's, you know, I wish I could say definitively, but I, I don't know whether it's that, um, you know, two years down the road after, after enacting this change, you have like you know, more political diversity, but largely still within the two party system. And then, you know, 10 years later you have more, but I, I don't know how it, exactly it, it would, it would work. It, it would probably depend on a lot of things, but, um, whether it's, some serious fracturing that that would happen in the two party system um or it's uh largely done by by third and fourth parties the same you know the basic result is the same which is that more voices are represented in our politics um to answer your first question that's a great question about would we have to increase the size of the house um which technically you wouldn't uh you know you can um you can enact this change um by simply again like breaking up massachusetts has nine representatives mm-hmm. all of them represent one district they could still just have nine representatives but instead of you know nine districts there would be like three districts with three representatives each um so you could keep the number the same that way um but there's a lot of and 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 that's i mean fix our house is mm-hmm. you know um we simply support proportional representation. So there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, Lee Drutman, one of our our co-founders who wrote a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, um, which I would I would recommend. And he really explains this, this kind of stuff very well. Lee is also very supportive of increasing the size of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, he testified before Congress a few months ago uh, to talk about uh, modernizing and, and increasing the size of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the founders, uh, I think if if the original Second Amendment to the Constitution had been ratified, we would have something like 7,000 representatives yes. in the House, something like that. Right now we have 435, right? But um, uh, that formula used to keep, uh, like there used to be a, 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 a a formula that, that Congress would adopt to like set how many seats there were. Um, and about a hundred years ago, we just stopped because the two parties couldn't, couldn't agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been frozen at, at 435 ever since, you know, it, the founders wanted, uh, you know, a system of government where your representative was somewhat close to the people they were representing. Right now we have like districts that are 700, 800,000, people per representatives that's not a local representative you know mm-hmm. so yes it 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 you know makes people's eyes bulge sometimes when you talk about how big the house could be uh if if we if we increased that but you know most countries have much larger houses than than we do um and what i would just tell people is 435 people in a room is already a ton of people. <laughs> it's not like these are, you know, these are our folks sitting around having like thoughtful deliberations amongst themselves, you know, that the system is supposed to work through committees and through these other organizing features of democracy. Um, you know, so, you know, increasing the size to, to 
uh, allow for better local representation um, would would probably not uh, not change the organizational features of Congress if that's if that's a concern for people. Right. I think, yeah, you brought up two really good points. I, I liked the the breakdown where you said Massachusetts could be, you know, three districts with three different members. It's very much so um, like what we have in the Senate now. Uh, so that's really interesting. Also, I'm completely for increasing uh, members of the House. And there's a lot of resources online that people can look at for that, yeah. for how we definitely need more representation. Um, not to go too hard on you, but... I mean, a lot of critiques about proportional representation is that um, it provides for a lot of debate and could be political instability as opposed to single member districts, which is what we have now. The people have to work together in order to get to get reelected, to get things done. Um, you know, obviously, we don't we're, we have problems with that in a single member district, but especially when you mentioned proportional representation in, in the countries that it's in. Those are pretty um, like homogeneous countries where America has a lot of diversity in opinions, cultures, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So how would we get anything done in this crazily diverse new house? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, first of all, I would say that that um, there there's plenty of of diversity in, in a lot of other countries uh, mm -hmm. that do have proportional representation. Um, and in fact, you know, it's when when America uh, helps, you know, other countries design their constitutions, we don't recommend the model that we have. We don't recommend single member districts um, because, you know, the, the research shows that it's it's better for a diverse country to have uh, a more coalition style approach. Um, but I, I totally hear what you're saying. I guess I would say. To start with, you were talking about the political instability of a multi-party system versus the political stability of uh, single member districts as we have them. I mean, we don't have a lot of political stability right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the reason for that is the binary two-party divide that we have. I mean, it's, uh, what is election day in like three days Yeah. now? And the commercials you'll see if you live in one of these swing districts of which there are not many uh which we can get into that too i mean one of the problems with single member districts is that um there's just hardly any competition because you know if you live in a district that's 60 percent one party mm -hmm. you're you're just kind of screwed and like you you don't have uh, a voice um even though you represent you know a, a big chunk of of your area but if you do live in in a somewhat competitive district the stuff you're seeing on TV right now is not substantive. It's not about policy. It's not about, you know, what people are running on for the most part. Um, it's about how terrible, you know, their opponent is, um, which is something that you can do in a two party uh, system where you're just trying to win, you know, one seat. And so the back and forth um, is not only toxic and, uh, and, like awful to watch, but it also further heats up uh, the polarization and therefore dysfunction um, in in our politics. You know, um, part of the reason that Congress can't get anything done is that we elect people primarily because they aren't their opponents, mm -hmm. and you know, and uh, and and we send people like you know Marjorie Taylor Greene to to Congress who doesn't know anything about legislating. 
but is uh, is is there, you know, to um, to attack Democrats pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have more political stability in a system where um, you don't you aren't able to run against the lesser of two evils, as as Lee Drutman, uh says. You, no one ever says anything about the lesser of three evils or the lesser of five evils. Hmm. That's not a thing because when you have more options, candidates and parties run on what they support rather than simply run against the other side. Um, so that is, we think, the key feature to create more political stability. Um, now, yeah, if you have a fracturing um, of the two-party system, you know, you probably end up with uh, with the system where parties have to form some amount of coalition to get anything passed. But isn't that exactly what we want? I mean, isn't that mm-hmm. what most people say they want Congress to do to, to, you know, a lot of people say, you know, we want to reach across the aisle. We want to, you know, we want to have more working together and bipartisanship. And it's, it's, it's not, you know, possible uh, so much in this, in this current system where the parties are motivated um, to, you know, primarily go after the other party or, you know, never work with um, the other party because of the political system that we have. Um, if you have more options, um, you you start electing people and parties that uh, that um, are are more similar to each other, that have more of an ability to find areas of compromise um, and that that aren't uh primarily put in Congress because, you know, they're as different as they can possibly be from their opponent. So, I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I singled out one member of Congress earlier, but I mean, there's a lot of members who um, would, you know, would say probably in private that they they want, they want a system where they can work with members of the other side more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, their constituents, the ones that elect them at least, uh, you know, that's not what they're motivated to want in our current system. So I hope that comes close to an answer on how we think this system is actually um, is actually much better for political stability. In fact, that's yeah. that's the main reason that I think a lot of us are involved in this project, because we see democracy kind of teetering in America. And we think we need to break this binary us versus them doom loop divide that uh, that isn't getting any better. And the only way to do that is by breaking the binary um, between uh, between the, the two parties. And you do that by changing how we elect people. Right. And then as far as, like you mentioned, Marjorie Taylor Greene or something along those lines, would not proportional representation allow for potentially more Marjorie Taylor Greene's pretty fringe candidates and they could have like a coalition for like anti-semitic like that's their party um would that not be like a risk to to our political institution so those those people would absolutely have uh their own faction or or party Mm -hmm. but it would be in proportion to their amount of support right now trump you know and and trump republicans have an entire political party in a two-party system that's mm-hmm. way out of proportion to their amount of support. So, um, you know, the, those those political actors, uh, and I, I recognize there's some diversity on uh, on the far right, but let's just say that the authoritarian or, or anti-democratic, mm-hmm. uh, like that part of the far right, 
um, yeah, like they they would have their own political faction, but they wouldn't have control of one of the two parties in the two party system. Mm-hmm. Um, they've essentially been able to pole vault themselves into power um, because of single member districts. You know, if you if you win your um, your party's primary in an uncompetitive mm-hmm. district, um, then you you basically just are a shoe in in the general election. That's like like we were saying earlier about. 90% of, uh, or, or, or something close to that, uh, of, of districts are uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you win the primary, you, you, you're, you're good. Uh, and that means that only the most, you know, the most politically engaged partisans are determining the representative for the whole district. So there's plenty of people in Marjorie mm-hmm. Taylor Greene's district who would love to have some voice that's not, you know, it's not, it's not 700,000 Marjorie Taylor Greens in her mm-hmm. district. Um, but right now, thanks to the way we elect Congress, she's able to have the whole seat all to herself. Um, so I totally hear what you're saying. And that's, it's true that, yeah, this would allow those people to have their own faction, but it would be proportional to their yeah. amount of, to their, to their size, you know, and right now they, have frankly inflated powder yeah yeah Yeah, uh no definitely and i think that that brought up a really good point where they pretty much have power right now so (laughs) um and then as far as as something i'd like love to maybe dig into well first i'm i I think that you brought up a good point with the primaries i definitely think that 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 is a problem and i even think especially a young youth turnout there's always um i've seen a lot on social media for getting the youth out to vote or you know, uh, Snapchat or Instagram or something along those lines, but they never mention the primaries. And so a lot of times, um, I know young people who are, who are starting to vote feel really conflicted that these are their two options and how did we get here? And I would definitely encourage a lot of people to look into our primary system and, and how that happens and, and occurs because um, that's really the behind the scene works on, on how we get these uh, not so great candidates. Um, yeah. And then switching, right. yeah. And then switching turns a little bit um, to the extent that you want to talk about it. Um, so we're filming this on November 5th. It's going to be released um, November 15th. So um, everything will be different. Everything yeah. will be different. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's presumably a, a pretty big announcement on November 14th. And it's looking like from a lot of sources that Trump is going to run again. And I think that in both your work with like Save 71 and your work now is that, you know, bad actors getting into power again and again is a really bad thing. And a lot of the times when it comes to these powerful positions, people don't want to speak up or they don't want to fight against. And obviously we can think of many um, political candidates who'd be interested in running um, for the Republican nomination, but probably won't because they don't want to run, run against Trump and the base. Uh, how how would you describe on on how we got here and how one person could could throw off um when you say like you know maybe MAGA Republicans or these French or the base um don't have that much power um how how do they have so much power that some some other Republican candidates wouldn't even think about running against Trump? Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great um question i mean i think that we talked a little bit about negative partisanship earlier mm-hmm. that like that that idea that you have this really conservative precinct on on our alma mater's campus where 
most students were choosing candidates other than Donald Trump, but then, you know, election day uh, in the general election rolls around and you only have two options. What ends up happening, um, and a lot of people have written about this, but is that, you know, if you're if you're driven by negative partisanship, you know, fear or dislike of your opponent, primarily, that often results in you actually ending up liking the person that or, or person or party that you you know didn't really like to start out with, but you really like how they're really tough on their opponent, and so you know, um, so you become more and more enthusiastic about um, about them. Um, so that's part of how this power can can be inflated um is when you start out with with two uh candidates and um and and two parties mm-hmm. in an election uh it can it can sort of trickle up into you know binary um binary polarization in more than just that one part of more than just that one election and, and more than just that one part of your life that that there's this us versus them that um that voters feel that that kind of uh has has really taken over a lot of uh a lot of like it's taken over how people get their news it's taken over how um you know people interact with each other in a lot of ways uh in the mm-hmm. pandemic this was a really dangerous thing because it there was this us versus them um, I say was, <laughs> is a dangerous thing in the pandemic, you know, the um, us versus them kind of binary divide. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, um, I think I would, I would pin a lot of this still at the, at the kind of us versus them binary that is really a credit to our, our two party system. Um, yeah, definitely creates for like hyper partisanship and, and yeah. bringing out the worst in people um and then i would just say just over the course of of your life and experience up into this point with like liberties united against trump save 71 um and even now like why do you care um so much about accountability and having good actors in these institutions and when thinking about when to get involved um, like when an institution so bad that you should get involved, like how, how do you go about that process mm, and decide yeah. next steps? <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess I, it, it's important to me because I think, um, it, there's something really wrong with a leader of an organization or a political um movement um being dishonest with their with the people following them mm-hmm. um you know uh at at liberty um it i really noticed this at, at an acute level where fallwell and and not just fallwell but but other leaders that would come and, and speak at liberty and and other leaders at liberty um kind of used students as a platform to stand on you know, um, and, and use students, um, in a way that was bad for the students because it, it was dishonest, you know, uh, I'm talking generally and we, I could get mm-hmm. specific out of a particular example, but like this happened all the time in, in convocation, uh, on Liberty's campus where, you know, students would, would go to this chapel, like, uh, service, 
um, and sing, you know, sing, you know, gospel Christian music. Um, and then, you know, a politician would step on the stage and sort of have the blessing of basically speaking in a context that feels like church. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> could be really manipulative. I mean, there's a lot of power in that. And they would, um, they would use that power to, to capture some of that trusting, supportive energy that they got from students to sell something, mm-hmm. um, whether it was themselves or a book or you know, whatever. Um, I think that's super wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that um, that same kind of thing happens uh, in our politics um, with, you know, opportunists, whether they're whether they're Trump or or, or, or someone else who is looking at, um, you know, they're looking at the political landscape and thinking I can I can capture power based on, you know, um, based on people's, you know, fears of each other or fears mm-hmm. of, of another person. And that, and that when they, when they do that, they are, um, they are doing something to uh, their voters and their supporters. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like after 2016, you see a lot more, I think of this, honestly political hatred in our environment and and so so basically i'm i'm kind of rambling but i think that um people deserve leaders who um actually represent um like the decent side of mm-hmm. of people which in a system where you can vote based on what you believe in you'll see a lot more of uh, than in a system where you you vote based on what you you hate and fear um and so i hope that makes sense that's kind of why that's important to me um yeah yeah is your other question in terms of how to like get involved when you see something that you don't um don't like i mean i uh a lot of it is just like i guess for me it just started with saying what i thought um Mm -hmm. or saying that i was i was frustrated about something um and then it that snowballed because then people will will read it or hear it and come to you to talk and mm-hmm. to share information and then and then you know so you know both the organizations I created when I was at Liberty were were organic I mean they, they weren't yeah. I didn't overnight say let's build an organization but it was like we have a lot of people that are are kind of on the same page about something we should just formalize it um Mm -hmm. so i think it it really starts by saying what you think you know leading leading with your your voice um and uh yeah so that's that's what i would say to that yeah i love that i also see that so closely to what you're doing now where you're providing that representation that is is missing and and that voice we know a, a ton of liberty students who completely disagree with um, the politics of Liberty University, what was going on at Liberty University, um, but they stay there for different reasons because they like a Christian environment or um, on it. I think both of us can vouch the people are are great at Liberty. And I, I met a lot of really cool professors and particularly in the School of Theology that were really awesome. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, I think speaking up is so important in, in providing that voice. And I hope to see people speak up after November 14th, but I guess we will see. Um, yeah, that today was so great. That's all the questions I had for you. Is there anything that you wanted to discuss that I didn't bring up? 
Um, no, nothing that comes to mind. Um, okay, great. Well, thank you so much for um, your time today. I will have your social media along with Save 71's work and Fix Our House in the description below. So everyone check it out. And I know that being a voter and being involved in democracy is kind of cool these days, which is really awesome. But I think that getting even further into it by figuring out how we can move forward um, beyond election day and what happens in the halls of democracy, like 700 other days a year is really where um, our country needs us the most. And so I would love for anyone listening to maybe look into getting involved um, or just more educated and well aware about these situations. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today, Dustin. Yes, plus one to all that. And uh, yeah, glad to glad to do it. Awesome. All right. Have a good one. Cool. You too.